but being interested to click is not the same thing as being interested in the topic, let alone having any intent to buy. We need an inherent sense in society of, I will do better in business if I'm ethical. And we are at a point in time where we've got all these examples of highly unethical people. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast here, episode 26. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great. Spring has sprung here in Oregon. Spring has sprung indeed. It is beautiful and hope it lasts for a good while. What's new? Let's start with another cartoon. You know, last episode, we started our first of a new feature, which is the cartoon of the week. So, yeah, we might as well get it entrenched. Yeah, this week's cartoon comes from a different source, a cartoonist with the name Ivani. And he has two women sitting in chairs somewhere. And one woman says to the other, I hate the person my targeted ads think I am. <laughs> and I brought it up just because I thought it was tremendously funny. And kind of ironic that, yeah, we're all getting feedback now coming through email and on Facebook and on Twitter and all these other places that based on what we've done, it tells us what they think I am. And I thought that was pretty funny. On the other hand, there are probably some good marketing thoughts to come up with that it points out. Yeah. So my head went immediately to the other saying that be the person your dog thinks you are. <laughs> that, that's a reminder there. But also to all manner of commentary, especially on social media, where people ridicule the ads that were presented to them. Mm -hmm. It's like, I have no idea why I'm presented with this ad. I have no interest in this. So it's either that, or it's like, I just bought this. Why is this still being advertised to me two weeks later? So it's like misdirected, mistargeted ads which clearly continue to be an issue. Well, I think that advertisers and the digital folks selling the highly targeted stuff have confused the idea of somebody looked at a broom for the idea that they can interpret what you want, right? Because the whole yeah. idea was that they were going to make it ads that were what you would naturally want. So that the ads you'll see are the ones you would naturally want to see. But, you know, I do have to shop for brooms every now and then. And mm -hmm. I have no interest in broom ads. Um, so, <laughs> I think, you know, so first of all, there's a real problem there. But I think when you look at what people click on and believe that that reveals the person behind the clicks, you're making a big jump. It doesn't at all. Big jump. Big jump. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, way too far of a jump. Yeah. But I think a lot of people who offer digital ads have convinced themselves that's how it works. And, you know, I think what we are seeing is it is really weird, the kinds of things you get served. And I see a lot of those come up on Twitter where somebody says, I don't know why I got the ad for pregnant women who happens to be a 65-year-old male. Right. <laughs> That's right. You do get those that are completely off and you have no idea how the algorithm got to that point. The other thing really, as you're saying, is that just because I click on something doesn't mean that I'm even interested in it. Yeah. That, I mean, I'm quote, interested in the sense that I clicked on it, mm -hmm. but being interested to click is not the same thing as being interested in the topic, let alone having any intent to buy. I think our interests shift much faster than people want to think. 
right? So I might on a Thursday shop for a wastebasket, order some new headphones, and then spend the evening browsing fly fishing stores because I am just, I like fly fishing stuff and it's always interesting to see what's out there. And I might do all that browsing without really even wanting to buy anything, but more as a kind of a hobby, check in with the hobby, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. then I get a week of fly fishing ads. Right. <laughs> I'm not interested anymore. You know, I was just looking at it for that one night. And so pummeling me for the next week with fly fishing ads, just because I looked at something on Thursday night doesn't mean that I'm actually interested in it all the way through. I already bought the wastebasket and decided not to get headphones. So, yeah. you know, I mean, it's weird. I mean, you know, so then I get all this follow-up that is entirely out of context and it kind of pisses me off at whoever's sending it. So given how much data social media and other digital platforms have on everybody, it's astounding to me that even after all that data, they're unable to match what you might actually be interested in. I think we can think about it in a sense, this is what I teach, that if you look at as a brand or as a marketer, you say, okay, here are the likely people to purchase my product. And you describe those people. And then you look at the data that is naturally collected online. What you'll find is there's no match between those. Hmm. So how I describe when people are interested in my product is entirely different from the data bits that are available, the pieces of data that are gathered about people online. Because all we can do online is gather the evidence that appears. And as a person, I don't reveal everything about myself online. Hmm. I go with what's available online, with what online things are useful to me. But I read a lot of books offline. I take hikes. I go fishing. That stuff doesn't make it into my online activity. So what is gathered in all those reams of data, and yes, there's vast warehouses of data, but it doesn't match up with who we need to talk to. And so I think with any marketer, I don't hear many people talk about this, but for any marketer, we have to do a some sort of weird transformation that says, okay, well, they can't exactly get the people we want. What's the closest approximation? And so we're making guesses. This guy shopped for a wastebasket once. Maybe he'll want a laundry basket. So here are the questions then. Is it that their understanding of who I am is deficient? And I'm assuming that that's not the case because they've got so much data on me that they probably know me better than I do. So that's one piece. Is it that given that understanding, they're unable to conclude what might be of interest? And then thirdly, what might be of interest and actually have a propensity to buy mm-hmm. or a disposition to buy? Or is it that they're just selling clicks and if I'm close enough, they're going to show it up because that already lets them buy impressions, get paid for impressions. And if I happen to click then, because I see that too with like some, especially prevalent in gaming, when you cannot get out of a particular screen until you click three times on something. And then you wonder if they're doing that because they're selling clicks and by making it three times, that they meet their quota. I think it's the, the two extremes. Because on the one end, you have a lot of advertisers buying super cheap clicks. It's like the old auto dial phone thing that it basically becomes free to buy the clicks. So why not buy another 100,000 clicks? And if one person out of 100,000 responds, you're fine. You've gotten what you want for your advertising. So there is a bit of that happening at the one end. I think the other thing at the other end is that 
what we do digitally is only a sliver of a window into us. Mm. So if you think about, you know, if you're on the other side of the computer, so now imagine you're sitting in the computer looking back out at the person using it. All you're able to see is a narrow window of them. And so I do think there's a serious problem with, you know, people saying, oh, well, we know all about these people because we have all this data. But that data can't really reveal who we are, you know, because Mm -hmm. from your computer window, you never see Doug go take a hike. And I don't tend to talk about that online. I don't, you know, so in fact, it never shows up because if you're looking out through the computer screen, you're only seeing part of Doug and you're not seeing the whole of Doug. And so there is an inherent disconnect between all that data and the degree to which it could describe people. Yeah. So another topic we were discussing in our pre-show was food storage containers. News comes out this morning that Tupperware apparently is in trouble. Their sales have been suffering and they've announced that they're out trying to arrange funding in order to continue business. And so I was surprised. um, So let me interrupt. I think it may be necessary to explain who Tupperware is. Yeah. All right. For those of you younger than uh, either Shaheen or I, (laughs) here's Tupperware. In the 1950s and 60s, Tupperware came out with excellent food storage containers and a lot of innovations because they were airtight, a lot of good things. And they sold them via Tupperware parties. So they'd be kind of one of the first really big operations to do in-home parties as a way to sell their product. And they became an icon. Everything that did food storage began to be called Tupperware, whether it was their brand or not. They're the Kleenex of of that category. And they became huge. So that's who they started as. And they're still that company. That's still what they do is make airtime. They invented the space. Essentially, they invented the space. Eventually, I would say Rubbermaid came out pretty soon with others that competed with them. And then it's diversified a lot since then. In the pre-show, you and I were looking at Amazon and, you know, whereas Tupperware units were things you cared for and you loved. And if you took one to a party, you always made sure you got it back. Now on Amazon, you can get 60 Rubbermaid containers for 12 bucks or something like that. I mean, some outrageously. So disposable, basically. Yeah, I didn't think there's an implication they become disposable, cheap, and insignificant, or that they become commodity. Because what made Tupperware Tupperware was it was entirely unique. When they started, they dominated because it was such an unusual product. It so fit the world of the 1950s and 60s, and they came out and took the world by storm. But now these kind of containers have become kind of containers that look like it have become kind of dime a dozen. And so Tupperware has a problem. I brought this up and I mentioned that we were doing this in the pre-show because I think it's a really interesting example of a very serious marketing challenge. This is not going to be easy for them to figure out a good way forward. So my thinking as I was listening to you and reading the story was that Back when they got started, they also had to battle the notion that plastic storage may or may not be the best way. So they had to overcome that. And maybe Mm -hmm. these Tupperware parties were an opportunity to see it and get some case studies going and personal experience, et cetera, to build trust. And maybe that was the proper distribution strategy at that time. Clearly it was because they did so well. But then as we looked at what's available for sale online, they just looked like they were not either competitive or they're not communicating why they are competitive. Here's what I was struck with. So so our listeners know, we both searched kind of containers, storage containers, and then we also searched Tupperware. 
And it was kind of sobering because containers are a dime a dozen. There are so many types out there. And given the way that Amazon doesn't want anybody to be able to search for anything specific, it's dominated by the no-name, strange brands, all those things that we've come to begin to hate Amazon for. But when you search Tupperware, you get the same thing. And eventually you see a few things from Tupperware. And the one that came up highest was basically nostalgia styled, which is just like what they had in the 50s and 60s. But as I went on down, what was interesting is there was an Amazon Choice product, meaning it, it had been vetted really well. And that one used the term leak proof in its description. And as I saw that, I struck that Amazon showed this bland set of descriptions where the only thing that mattered was the picture and the number of units in it. And that's the way the display works. Up against that, Tupperware is in trouble because these days, I don't know who they are. I don't know if they've got anything good. I don't know if they're any better than those. And their prices were far higher. Whereas I think with Rubbermaid, it's under a dollar per tub in a sense. With Tupperware, they were on the order of 6 to 10 to $15 per tub. So it's a really big premium price they're charging. I look at it as a problem of all four of the Ps. You know, do they have the right unique product? I don't know at this point because I don't know much about them. If they have the right unique products, are they priced appropriately? And I personally have no problem with premium prices. I love premium prices intended to, in my career. I've spent a lot more time telling clients to increase their price than decrease mm -hmm. their price. But I don't know enough about them to know if that price is justified. And then you've got distribution problems that they used to be parties. Now they're available on Amazon, but boy, it's not looking good for them selling a whole lot through there. And then they've also gone into Target. So they're beginning to do retail distribution. I don't know what to think about that. And then overall with that, I say they've got a communication problem. To be honest, I saw the headline and one of my reactions was, oh, are they still around? Yeah, um, you see right there. Because we don't really know anything about them. I don't know if they're worth it. I don't know if the price is worth it. I don't know if I'd go out of my way to go to a store to get them. And they've got some really serious problems confronting them. And I don't know what to say about you know the likelihood. I feel terrible for anybody who's at Tupperware because it's very hard to solve these problems. For you and me and for our listeners, I hope it's an instructive example to look at to try to figure out, boy, what should be done? And this is all for the P's. I do need to add the little bit of concerning extra Byron Sharp. Uh, out yeah. of and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute responded to a tweet about it on, you know, it's Twitter does still exist. And he said, because in their article on the BBC, the second line says Tupperware has been attempting to reposition itself to a younger audience, but it has failed to stop the slide in sales. And Byron Sharp says, are they about to join the graveyard of brands who felt their problem and therefore solution? was all about appeal to young consumers. And I had to laugh. Yeah, that's, because he's right. That's very astute. I don't have the data. Maybe maybe it really is. Yeah. But at the end, what is unmistakable is that if you're having difficulty, you're not competitive. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're not competitive. Well, so. yeah, I, I do want to, yeah, I think it's worth dwelling on the young old thing a little bit because younger is a relative term. I think what's funny is I know when I hear that, I envision a company that's focused on Gen Z. And right. that may not be what's going on here. 
it could be that Tupperware has discovered their core consumer is approaching 75 and that that's a problem for them. And that for them, younger is 35 to 45. Um, <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> and I think that, you know, younger is in the eyes of the beholder. On the other hand, having been in advertising and around a lot of ad agencies, ad agencies do believe that life stops after 30. And so uh, when I see that line, I think that they probably are implying super young not just younger. That's what I read for the same reason. And I think that's highly misguided because older people have all the money as Tom Peters likes to repeat and women buy everything. So <laughs> you better appeal to that demographics. Now we mentioned searching online for products and that is a very good segue into another topic we talked about and that's review hijacking that Uh-oh. has become a thing enough for the FTC to take a look. Yeah, well, you know, the FTC has been trying to help kind of stay abreast of what's been going on online. And as with anything new, they're always a number of years behind, perhaps a decade. But, you know, it's better for the FTC probably to be slightly behind than to be too far ahead. Because if they try to get ahead, then it tends to stop what might be actually really useful for society and the country and all that stuff. So I don't mind that they're a bit behind. On the other hand, there are things that they're discovering that are really kind of shocking. So what brought this up is that they approved a final order against a Bountiful company, whom I didn't know, but it turns out Bountiful company makes the Nature's Bounty vitamin supplement brand, as well as some other products in the Nature's Bounty is in a lot of stores. So I've seen them around a lot. And what they got in trouble for is that on Amazon, if you come out with a product that maybe is just strictly a different color, you know, you have a chair and it sells really well and you come out with it in blue in addition to having it brown, Amazon will essentially let you piggyback your new color with the old color, and then all the reviews for the old color apply to the new product. Right. And they have technical terms for these. And I tell you, I get so buried in those technical terms. I don't know. Let's just leave it with piggyback. And what Nature's Bounty did is they came out with some new products that they piggybacked like that because they had the same headline title and purpose, but were very different formulations. And so these new products got all the benefit of all the reviews for the other products except the new products were made people very unhappy and wow. were not liked. And yet all the reviews said they were highly liked. And that is an unethical use of that feature in Amazon. Now, is there any way to prevent that from happening by Amazon? Is that because it is all automated and digital and nobody takes a look and it's all self-regulated and that's the problem as well, or is it? Yeah, I think the self-regulation's a lot of that problem. Think about how many products are on Amazon and how many of those products can you put that kind of oversight on? It's very difficult. You just <laughs> think about how many different entries we saw when we just looked at Tupperware. Yeah, that's true. 40, you know, yeah. I mean, how do you keep track of it? Well, it's overwhelming. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. It is. Oh, wait, we got a new, a new segment. AI will solve that. So. <laughs> of course, I will solve that. Yes, because yes. it will learn from all that data. Yeah, and, you know, I wouldn't put it past AI to solve that. By the way, well, I, I'm not sure they'd be able to solve it, but I think they could maybe do a good job of highlighting. Hey, somebody real, somebody physical, ought to look at these products and see if they really are similar enough to qualify that label. Right. It's a hard problem, but it didn't seem like they had to go through too much of a length to scam the system. 
it seemed like a relatively simple thing to do, right? Yeah, I have a hunch. I mean, I haven't done it myself, but I have a hunch it's almost as simple as a checkbox in the listing. Right. It seemed that way. I think, you know, where this led in the discussion you and I were having earlier is how many new things there are these days where marketers are just trying to skate the edges and kind of steal something for themselves. And it's really disappointing to me to see people who put all their effort into stuff like that instead of making good products and selling them well. Are we talking about unethical business practices and marketing? <laughs> Are there? I mean, I, I thought marketing didn't ever have that. Yes, actually, that is what I'm talking about. And actually, I think that is a very big problem in marketing because there are a lot of people who think that's what marketing is. And when you say that, you know, please, please don't think of marketing as just manipulating the consumer to buy something. Let's think of it as an honest effort to match real needs with real capabilities, which is what it's supposed to be. The answer is, well, you know, carry on being idealist. That's a good thought, but that's not what happens in practice. So that's too bad because I think that has a negative impact on the entire discipline, the entire profession. It doesn't, but we're coming out of such a period of these really horrible abuses of that, especially because with the introduction of this idea of a brand that's purposed, you know, where the company does something not just to supply a good product to customers, but because they're going to save the world in some way. And I think here of WeWork, Adam Newman got away with all kinds of incredible BS, cult-like BS about saving the world. I think of Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. I think of the growing, you know, kind of joking scandal, but really honestly a scandal of how many people on the 30 under 30 lists are in jail. Um, yeah, in fact, in fact it's fine. almost becoming like if you show up on that list, we better yeah. worry. You better worry the, the FBI is going to knock on your door here pretty soon. It's like the headlines are all about these people who skate the system and get away with it, not to mention a certain, not to try to get political, but a certain former president whose business practices have been found in court to be highly suspect. And yet the penalty, there never seems to be a penalty for it. Yeah. So like we were talking about in our pre-show, what we need is examples of ethical success, examples yes. of doing the right thing and being successful. And there are several companies, many companies that are very successful. Maybe we should celebrate those. Yeah. Maybe we should really, you know, in the absence of a real stick for punishing those who are not ethical. Maybe we should at least celebrate those who are. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties we have in American capitalism or our American you know, commercial system is that the FTC, for example, is not funded well enough to be proactive. And so the FTC is a catch-me-if-you-can kind of operation. And well, I mean, you know, the great people over there, really great people over there, but they aren't funded to be able to take action very easily. I mentioned that, you know, if I take an advertisement into Canada, it has to be approved by a government operation before it can go on air. That protects the consumer. It also protects the advertiser. Because now I don't have to worry that somebody's going to come back after me in nine months and say, well, you know, you said this in the ad and we can't support that because the government will have already suggested those things. You know, I'm not saying there's an easy answer, but we do have a problem that, you know, in the U.S. we've tended to set up operations like the FTC and then fail to provide them funding, but then continue to point to them and say, well, they're keeping track of commerce, making sure it's good. But, you know, some of that really needs to be just the business itself, the environment itself, the social contract what is tolerated and isn't tolerated by boards and the C-suite 
and the community as large. And I think the problem is that too many times we think that borderline unethical behavior or even outright unethical behavior is just clever. And if you get away with it, well, then that's like good for you. And if you don't, you're being naive. I think that's the problem is that if people start thinking that way, it becomes really difficult to regulate it, right? Well, it's difficult to regulate. It's also, yeah, because we need an inherent sense in society of, I will do better in business if I'm ethical. And we are at a point in time where we've got all these examples of highly unethical people who have done well enough in business. I mean, Adam Newman walked away from WeWork with, what, a half billion dollars in the bank, at least, and all sorts of property. And it's kind of an incredible thing because he was just taking people for a ride. But the more examples there are of that, the harder it is for, say, my marketing students to believe, if I do my marketing well, I will be rewarded and can succeed. And, right. You know, right. That is still the truth. It's just harder to believe in it because young people see so many scams get well rewarded. Yeah. You know, this topic comes up in many other conversations. So it's a thing. I really think so. It's a thing. And, you know, lying is not okay. And we need to get to a point where we don't tolerate it. When I talk ethics with my students, I give them, the, you know, there's three levels of ethics. Number one is to sell good products in ways that people are satisfied once they buy them. And yeah. that's hard in and of itself. Number two is run a good company, you know, treat employees with respect. You don't, I mean, you don't have to not fire anybody because that stuff happens, but you got to treat people with respect, make good money. Treating yourself with respect requires that you charge enough to make profits. And, you know, so it's, and that's hard. That's a tough thing to do. And then, oh, by the way, if you have money left over after that, you can go to the third set, which is put shoes on poor children and things like that, which are really right. good things to do. But our society needs strong businesses. And if we don't have strong businesses, there are far more poor people come about because there's more people without work. There's more people with jobs that can't pay enough to even have a home. So I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm getting my, my old guy curmudgeon on here and beginning to sound <laughs> like I'm just pitching. But. Right. Well, maybe on that uplifting note, we can conclude this episode. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Next time for another downer with Doug. No, I think it's a it's a big problem that hopefully we can solve as the marketing community must be able to solve this. Yeah. Well, um, and I feel really positive about it because I do know that those people who do the hard work will be happier in the long run, more satisfied with their life in the long run, make plenty of money, maybe not fabulous riches, but extraordinary riches are no guarantee of happiness. What you need to do is live a whole life where we are, you know, we want to be well enough off, but we also want to have a family and people around us and be able to do the things that make us happy. There's a lot more to life than getting rich quick. Yeah, especially if it's the logical equivalent of robbing a bank. <laughs> 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 All right, so we're going to bring this up too going forward because I think that really is a good cause to rally behind and hopefully some of our listeners will do that as well. And as a last thought, any listeners with ideas about people we should look at as good examples of smart, straightforward, honest marketing, I'm happy. I think Bring that- it on, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, we didn't get to our other perennial topic, data, but we will next time. I'm developing a whole kind of a journey of data. Mm -hmm. And of course, in digital world, digital mistrust comes right out of it. Uh, So that adds to our topic that we were just talking about. But good stuff. All right. Thank you, everybody. Until next time. Take care.
Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.